All right, as I said a moment ago, we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and find that text, you can read along with me in a moment. And uh, for those of you that are our guests today, um, I should just say by way of introduction or explanation that occasionally when we gather as followers of Christ to worship Him, um, He engages us and meets with us in such a way that He kind of um, calls us into a new day of living with Him and for Him. And those kinds of occasions uh, become something of defining moments for us. And it's a little bit of my anticipation today that this will be one of those kind of times. So I say that to you to just kind of put you at ease and and let you know uh, nobody has to do anything in here today. Okay, You have total freedom. To just kind of sit back, check it out, watch, uh, you know, what we're saying and how we say it and what God might do with some other people. But, uh, we don't want anybody to feel, uh, undue pressure, at least from me. Um, God might exert some, but, uh, to feel freedom to just, uh, check it out, sit back and, and see what God might be up to with us today. I'm starting a whole new series of talks today and I've called this series Confessions Worth Repeating confessions worth repeating, and uh, when you think about confession, maybe you tend to go negative, and you think about. Can you give me my words there, Kareem? For, for whatever reason, they're not popping up. So you may think of it in a more negative kind of sense that uh, it refers to sins or it refers to wrongs. It refers to crimes. And therefore, a confession is kind of coming forth with guilt, with shame. I'm going to be highlighting just the opposite of that whole concept of confession for the next four weeks. And I'm going to be doing it from a more positive stance where confessions has to do with Expressions of belief, expressions of faith, expressions of confidence in God. Those words are not going to come up. Just, just skip them. Um, and so what I have done is I have uh, pulled a few con- confessions out of the scriptures that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks that have uh, been meaningful to me through the years. Uh, confessions that I have kind of... Uh, I do want those pictures, though, guys. Are you just restarting the whole thing? Okay. I'm not distracted, are you? (laughs) Okay. Uh, So, I have pulled some of those confessions out of the Scriptures that have been meaningful to me through the years. uh, Confessions that I have more or less made my own. And that I'm going to be inviting you to grab hold of like I have uh, grabbed hold of them through the years and make these confessions your own. So, um, for example, in Daniel chapter 3, the familiar story to you about three Hebrew young men, back in the 6th century B.C., uh, during the time when the Babylonian Empire ruled the world. Uh, these three Hebrews were called upon by the king Nebuchadnezzar to compromise their faith and basically bow to him and worship him rather than God. And they weren't going to compromise. And so most of you know the story that the king said, well, then you'll die. 
And so he had this fiery furnace and he heated it up seven times hotter than normal because he was really ticked off and he was going to hurl them in there and make crispy critters out of them and all this. And so he then thought better of it and gave them a second chance, as you may recall. And in that second chance, he said, okay, here it is. If you will bow to me, worship me, I'm going to give you this deliverance from the fiery furnace. And you know what they said? They said, our God is well able to deliver us from your fiery furnace. But even if he does not, we are not going to compromise our faith. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I have used that confession in my life through the years. The idea of fiery ordeals that you may go through, that I may go through, I I pull that confession out and make it my own. Some of you have had fiery ordeals around your health. And you have gotten a surprise diagnosis, and it has looked pretty foreboding and fearful, and you're like, what am I going to do about this? And you've asked maybe God to heal you, and God does heal. Uh, sometimes He heals in the way that we ask Him to, and there's like this physical uh, transformation that happens. Sometimes He heals us in ways that we weren't looking for, and it's more of an internal, uh, spiritual, soulish kind of healing that, that uh, happens instead. But in any case, when the temperature gets turned up around health issues, and I ask God to do something, I have this disposition that says, but even if He doesn't, God, would you heal me? Would you deliver me from this health circumstance or situation? But even if you don't, I will trust you. It's the same thing with the finances. Uh, you know, you tried to live responsibly and frugally and, and uh, carefully. Uh, I, I'm not talking about being crazy and, and careless and you're not uh, uh, minding the stewardship of the resources that God entrusts you. But uh, as you're doing that and you sense God calling you to be generous here, or to give there and so on, uh, and you find yourself in a financial crisis at some point. I was talking to a believer just this past week who had invested pretty significantly in Washington Mutual and had uh, divested a number of his stocks, you know, several months ago, but he didn't all of it. And he, you know, got noticed this week, it is like a goose egg now. It's worth nothing to him. And I'm talking substantive amounts of money. So it's like, okay, God, you know, will you help with this financial situation? Uh, Will you come through for me? But even if you don't, I'll trust you. Same thing about opportunities, uh, where I I have this uh, blank page before me that I have the opportunity to fill it in with some kind of uh, investment of myself, some kind of making a difference for for another person, and it just seems to go right by, and I lose that opportunity. God, would you give me that opportunity again? Would you do something about this opportunity? But even if you don't. You see how that confession works for us? And then I think about about a century later after uh, those uh, Hebrews living in the Babylonian Empire of the 6th century. About Queen Esther who lived in the Persian Empire of the 5th century. And some of you will remember in the story that she was just a peasant Jewish girl who God remarkably, shall we say, miraculously elevated to become queen of Persia. Peasant girl all the way to the palace. 
And somewhere along the way, her cousin Mordecai helps her to see, to understand, this is not because you're the luckiest girl in the world. This is because God's up to something. And Mordecai began to fill in some blanks for his cousin Esther to say, do you understand that our Jewish people, our Jewish race, is on the uh, threshold of extinction. We are about to be annihilated because of, of a Persian power movement that wants to eliminate all Jews. God has put you in place for such a time as this to intercede on our behalf so that he might use your position for our deliverance. I need you to go and seek out the king and intercede on the behalf of your people. And Esther says, oh, but Mordecai, you don't understand. It's not that simple. The king has this large harem of women. He has whomever he wants at any point that he wants. I've not even seen the king in a month. He hasn't summoned for me in all this time. And if I go and approach him without him having sent for me, he can kill me. All he has to do is, you know, give the thumbs down. I'm a dead woman. And Mordecai says, God's put you in such a time. For this. And her confession was, okay, well then, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to take a stand that I think God's asking me to take. And if I perish, I perish. I have used that confession over and over and over through the years. And I lend it to you to use also. Where have you had to take a stand? Where have you had to kind of like draw a line in the sand and say, okay, I'm going to stand and, and be who God's asked me to be. And if it costs me something, well, if I perish, I perish. You've had to take a stand at work. Something unethical or immoral was being proposed and, and you were more or less ordered that you were going to be doing this, that or the other. And you said no. And you said no because, and you filled in the blank about the morality statement. You took a stand. If I perish, if I lose this job, I lose this job. But here's the stand that I take. Some of you have done that in your social circles. Friends that you care about, people that you've known for a long time, but at some point they called upon you to make some kind of compromise, and you would not. If I die in this relationship, then I die to it. Some of you have done that with family. And you've, you've made some kind of stand about how you're going to be a follower of Christ and how you're going to serve His church and how you're going to steward your resources that He's entrusted to you. And they look at you like you're whacked out nuts. And it's like, nevertheless, I stand. So the, the question comes, how do these confessions become your confessions? How do they become my confessions? How do we live, uh, you know, staking in the ground our faith in these kinds of ways? I want to get at answering that question with one more story, and that's from the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 1, uh, a confession that has actually become my life verse. Ever since I've been 18 years of age, this has been the verse that I have uh, wrapped my life around where Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How do you get to a point in your life where that becomes the defining confession of who you are? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. 
Well, let me back up and give you a little history before we read some of the text. Uh, Paul was doing some missionary journeys, uh, going to a variety of cities and preaching the gospel and planting churches. And in the course of those travels, uh, at one point, God led him to the city called Philippi. This is in northeastern Greece. And at that time, in that day, uh, it was a Roman post from which the Roman uh, government, the Roman power of the day, uh, would oversee a region. And so it was a pretty important city. So he comes into Philippi, and as was his custom in the other cities, <clears throat> he began to preach. And he began to tell about Christ and the gospel, and he was hoping to get some followers of Christ together and plant a church, make a church, right? So in the course of doing that, as he's going around town preaching and just having little gatherings of people and telling them about Jesus, this little girl, according to Acts chapter 16, begins to tag along after him, and we're told that the girl is possessed by a demon. She has an evil spirit. And this evil spirit has given her a capacity to do, like, fortune-telling stuff. And a couple of businessmen had latched onto her and were using her to make a bunch of money for themselves. But I don't know if they're not paying attention or they're leaving her a little unsupervised, but she's latched onto Paul. She's following Paul all over Philippi. She's yelling out all kinds of stuff, disrupting his little preaching gatherings. Kind of bugs me, too. And so, in the process of this, he gets annoyed on one occasion, and he speaks to her, and he casts out of her that evil spirit. Right? And when the evil spirit leaves her, so does the uh, capacity, the power, to do this, like, fortune-telling stuff. Which means, these businessmen have just lost their cash cows, so to speak. They no longer have this income opportunity through this little girl. And they are pretty unhappy about it. And so they stir up the local officials in Philippi, get Paul arrested, have Paul beaten up, thrown into jail, and who knows what's going to happen to him from that point. And the story goes on to tell us in Acts 16, this is his introduction to Philippi. This is how he's going to plant a church there. He's in jail. Can you get into that scenario? I've come here to do God's work. I've come here to be God's man. I've come here to see the purposes and plans of God accomplished. I've come here to be faithful to Him in every way that I know how to be faithful. Wham, bam, slam into a jail. Beat up. It's approaching midnight. I'm still smarting and stinging from the whippings that I've just taken. I need God. And so Paul begins to sing. And Paul begins to pray. And Paul begins to worship God. All this is happening out loud. About midnight. You think that bothers anybody else in the jail? doesn't matter. I've got to have God. I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship Him. I've got to pray. I've got to sing. And in the course of that, some of you know the story, God then sends an earthquake. You know, just shakes the jail apart. Walls come down. Uh, iron bars come down. Even shackles come apart. I don't know how that happens except a God thing. And they're free to go. All the prisoners. 
And when the Philippian jailer sees these guys all free to go, he knows he's a dead man because it's his responsibility that no prisoner ever escapes. And so he takes his sword and he's about to end his life when Paul sees it and yells out to him, Don't do it! We're still here. We're not going anywhere. And the jailer is perplexed. You know, why would you stay when you are free to flee? And Paul begins to talk to him about Christ. Friends, that's how he started the church. That guy became a follower of Christ and his entire household became baptized followers of Jesus. And a church begins to get launched from that point. So that's kind of the history of Paul's relationship with the church in Philippi. Now, fast forward 12 years. Fast forward 12 years. Paul eventually leaves Philippi. He goes to several other cities. He plants other churches in other regions and all this kind of stuff. Twelve years later, he ends up in Jerusalem. And he gets arrested for the ministry that he's doing. They end up taking him to Rome as a prisoner. Where ultimately, you know the rest of the story, he's going to be killed. Now while he is in prison, awaiting a sentencing that will be death... He writes a few letters to some of the churches that he started in the prior years. And the church at Philippi is one of the churches that he wrote to. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 1. And I'm going to invite you to look with me at verse 12. Now, imagine that you have been a longtime friend of Paul's. You know he not only started the church in your town, but he started the church in all the towns around you and in various regions. You know he's a man of God. You know, almost everything that you've learned about God and about Christ, you've learned from Him uh, initially. So you've got this endearment thing, you've got this, this love, this, this honor, this respect for Paul, and now you hear that he has been arrested, taken to Rome to be tried and sentenced, will be killed. This would shake your faith a little bit. Because you're thinking, how can somebody who follows God so carefully and audaciously and boldly, be given over to this prison situation and death sentence. This would be very troubling to you. And so Paul seeks to respond to that in this letter. Look at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, imprisonment, death sentence, has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. In other words, I haven't been quiet about why I'm, I'm arrested and awaiting trial. Everybody knows it's because I'm a follower of Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but some out of goodwill, and so on. He goes about those guys. But pick it up in verse 19. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage 
so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, catch this, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ, also could be translated of Christ, Jesus, will overflow on account of me. Now let me talk about that briefly and I'll wrap up. Paul says, I know you're upset that I'm in prison, that I'm about to be sentenced, that I'm going to die. But I, I just want to say to you, I'm not upset about it. I see God at work in my imprisonment and my impending death. I have seen him um, do all kinds of things that have advanced the, the cause of the gospel. My only concern is that I not feel shame. Verse 20. Now what is shame? Shame is when we have this sense of, of uh, guilt and embarrassment that we have been undone and, and that we have been in the wrong. He said, here's my concern that I don't have shame. Now what's the opposite of shame? The opposite of shame is that I am recognized, that I am honored, that I am exalted. So he goes, here's, here's the deal. My only deal is I don't want to have shame. But he's saying, on the other hand, that's not because I want to be exalted. I want Christ to be exalted. Now what a difference. See, I'm, I'm fearful that shame would happen among you and among other believers because of what's going on with me, but not because it has anything to do with me. I don't want you to think ill of Christ. This is good. This is right. He is still sovereign and in charge. Don't lose heart about all of this. Let this serve to exalt Him. Because whether I live or die, I want to exalt Him. Now, he goes through a whole list of things that were coming out of his imprisonment. He said, because I am going through what I'm going through, the cause of Christ is becoming well known. I have not been an introverted prisoner. People all over the place are knowing about Christ and the cause is being advanced because of this. Men are trusting in Christ all over the place. Men have confidence in the Lord and speak of Him without fear. There's a boldness that's happening amongst believers because of what's happening with me. That's a good thing. Christ is being proclaimed. People are talking about Him all over the place. And Christ is being exalted. He's being lifted up. All that's happening because of this. And I'm glad for that. So my question is, how does somebody get there? You see, if you're, if you're not careful, you take a guy like Paul... And for that matter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Esther, and any other biblical personality we'd want to, to name. 
If you're not careful, you'll take those people and you'll make them not like you or me. You'll put them on some kind of pedestal and you'll say, you know what? That is for some kind of super follower of God. That ain't me. And I'm here to tell you, Paul was a lot like you and me. The thing that happened in Paul is that he had a personal engagement, a personal encounter, a personal experience with Christ that transformed him. It all began on the road to Damascus. Before he was a Christian, he was traveling this road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians. But he meets up with the risen Christ, finds out that Jesus is in fact not dead but resurrected, that He is in fact Lord, that He is in fact the promise of God, that He is in fact the Savior and the Deliverer that people have been waiting for. And that encounter opened up His eyes to see all kinds of things from God that He had not seen previously. And sometime after that, God began to say, Paul, I want you to go here. I want you to go there. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And he begins to develop this personal track record in his relationship with Jesus of saying, yes, 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 yes. So that here he is, you know, several years later on the threshold of execution. And he's still able to say yeses to God because he's come to know how trustworthy God is. And so he says, to die is gain. You see, the power that death has over anyone is that death seems to threaten us, to undo us, to prevent us from being and becoming. And death had no power over Paul. Because he said, you know what? Death doesn't stop all that God's been doing in me. Death takes it to another whole level. So death is gain. And friends, when you begin to live a life that sees that dying for or dying in Christ is your greatest gain, then you have begun to live a life that exalts and honors and worships Him. So he says, now whether it's in life or death, I want to exalt Him. If it's in death, that's just gain. But if it's in life, then to live is Christ. Now let's unpack that. He begins to show us some things in the text. If you still have the Bible open, look at what he's saying. He tells us that Christ gets exalted in our lives through this little progression. He says that to live is Christ, which he makes, in verse 22, equal to fruitful labor. To live for him is to have fruitful labor. You go, well, what's fruitful labor? He goes on to say in verse 24, fruitful labor means that I don't go on to heaven like when I want to. That means I stay among you and I stay in this world for your sake. I will be uh, a sojourner in this world for the sake of others who need to draw near to God. He says that fruitful labor is 
Me living with you and doing life with you in such a way that you have growth in the joy of faith. In other words, he says, to live is to be dedicated to your joy in the faith. Okay, so we're not talking about some kind of abstract to live as Christ. What does that mean? It comes down to this. To live is, I will spend my life until you and you and you and you and you and you are happy in Christ. Joyful in your faith. And at what point I don't have breath to do that anymore is gain. And again, you're going, okay, okay, but that's Paul. That's like apostle stuff. That's like Bible people stuff and all. No, friends, this is normal Christianity. This is not super Christianity. This is normal Christianity. Anything less than what we've just described is subnormal, subpar Christianity. And so it begins to raise the question. What's your relationship with Jesus? What is your commitment to Him? I kind of compiled all these confessions together that I've been talking about in this hour into I follow Christ no matter the cost. Now, there is an entire world. There is a very strong culture around us. There's a crowd, if you will, that says, do not make that the confession of your life. Don't go extreme. Don't be so strong and passionate. Uh, you know, be a little more laid back about it. Don't go crazy over this. There's an entire crowd and culture around us that says, just be religious if you want, but do so very, very privately and keep it to yourself. And Paul and many others said, no. To All right. So I'm just going to offer a simple invitation. It may not be for where you are today. It may be exactly where you are. But I'm going to invite you to say no to the crowd, no to the culture, no to everything that our world would say about toning down your expression of faith in Christ and your passion toward Him, toward your yes to Him. And I'm going to invite you to take up the cross. And so here at the foot of the cross are a number of little crosses. And... In a moment, I'm just going to invite you. That's your statement. I will trust and follow Christ no matter the cost. I'm going to join that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Esther, and Paul, and all the others that we could talk about. And I will follow him no matter the cost. Then I'll invite you to just come to the foot of the cross, take up your cross. And return to your seat as we'll move toward a close of the service, all right? So, Father, we uh, come in the name of Christ to make commitments of ourselves to you. To take up our cross, to say yes, anything and everything.
that you ask of us. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's your statement today, then you can come, take a cross, and return to your seat.